Hello and welcome to this celebration of movie excellence in 2024. I'm Alex Zane and this is Countdown to the BAFTAs, where in this series we look back at five movies that were long-listed, along with the nominees, for that most coveted award, Best Film, at the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024. This time... It's all of us strangers. The fun one on that was he, he did it in one take. I remember him calling up going, I've done it in one take. And, and always when you're a producer, you hear that. You're like, well, OK. He's going, no, 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 it's extraordinary. It's really worked really well. And you're going, great. <laughs> in this wide-ranging interview, we discuss how they got from the creative spark that started it all to the challenges faced in bringing it to the screen. And a quick warning, we will be talking about the story, so if you haven't yet, go see the movie, come back and get listening. This is Countdown to the BAFTAs. Drink. It's Japanese. It's meant to be the best in the world, but I couldn't tell you why, so... Oh, thanks. Okay, um... Okay, how about I come in anyway? If not for a drink, then... for whatever else you might want. One night in contemporary London, Adam, played by Andrew Scott, encounters a mysterious neighbour, Harry, played by Paul Mescal. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Do I scare you? No. A romantic bond grows and Adam returns to his suburban childhood home to confront memories of his past, only to find his parents still appear to be living there, exactly as they did before they died 30 years ago. So where are you living there? Not around here, I'm sure. Uh, I'm in London. Oh, how fancy. Whereabouts? You live by yourself. Do you want your own place? Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, a, just, just a flat. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? I told you we'd do well for himself, didn't I? Hi, I'm Sarah Harvey. I'm one of the producers of All of Us Strangers. So we had always talked about trying to find a ghost story to develop. And this film is is sort of loosely based on a Japanese ghost story by a very famous Japanese author called Tachi Yamada. The book was called Strangers and it was first translated into English language about 20 years ago. And so I kind of had read it then and couldn't get near the option at the time. Lots of people had been interested in it and just sort of tracked it because it really stayed with me. Um, and it's very different from the film that you've seen. It sort of veers into sort of horror towards the end, for example. So it's, it could have been much more of a genre film than, than All of Us Strangers is. But at its heart, it had a really interesting concept, which is kind of the same as in the movie, which is, um, you know, a 40-year-old guy goes back um, to his old neighbourhood in Tokyo and he he meets his essentially dead parents. And I just thought that was an amazing and very emotional um, sort of storyline to give somebody. We optioned the book and then we started looking for a filmmaker. Hi, I'm Graham Broadbent and as well as All of Us Strangers, which we're talking about today, I've produced films uh, including The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and The Banshees of Inisherin. Sarah and Graham worked closely with writer and director Andrew Haig. We're very filmmaker-driven. It's always the point of view on the story that's going to make it unique and extraordinary. And Andrew Haig we'd been talking to for a while, hadn't we, about yeah. we bring people into the office and then you know, try to make them like us and make them want to make a film with <laughs> us. The unlikely uh, 
process on this was I think a meeting we'd had with Andrew, just a general meeting, what you sometimes call the door handle conversation. We might have been talking about things he was interested in and literally just as you're at the door handle about to go, he goes, well, I might be interested in a ghost story. Mm. And then uh, Sarah mentioned this story. Uh, Andrew took the book away with him. And it was a strange quiet then for a week or two of like, is this a mad idea or not? Um, and then Andrew called up and said, I, I think there's something in this I could make something of. Having seen the film, that, that's quite amazing because uh, as anyone who has seen it will know, one of the crucial moments in the film is a door closing between <laughs> two characters. Uh, and in your reality, this actually happened. Yeah. Um, so did you then start talking about it in that moment or did you sort of go, we actually have a ghost story, let's get in touch again? Or did the meeting like snowball from, from there? I think it snowballed from there. I think Andrew just took his time to have a think about his reaction to, to the book. And then he came in. We'd had lots of conversations about where you could relocate the story. Um, it needed to be a big city. The book feels quite lonely, um, uh, and it's about identity. But but you could have you could have. We talked about putting it in various locations. I think. And Andrew came in with a kind of very strong sense and vision of what he wanted to do with it, and he wanted to set it in London. Which now it just feels like you know, it should have always been set in London, you know. And then he had his own very unique take on it, which makes it so personal. It's kind of almost incredible it is from a book because, and he's really put his heart and soul into it, which I think you can probably see. Absolutely, yeah. It feels it feels like a very, very personal film. And we're going to touch on some of those yeah. personal aspects that he brought in in a moment. And just to ask, as as producers, obviously you're chatting with Andrew. It's this serendipity of having a ghost story, him being interested in making one. At that early stage, do you still have to stand back and almost look at the prospect of making this film in quite an unsympathetic way and just analyse the potential risk involved in, in the huge undertaking that is making a film? I don't. <laughs> Graham probably does. I think at that early stage, at that early stage, you're looking at it going, is this a story that m people might be able to relate to? Is it a story that might be able to be cast? Uh, is it a story that might travel? And so when you break down the constituent ingredients to it, there is a great conceptual idea at the centre of it. What if you could go back and have a conversation with your parents who had died 30 years ago? Mm. Uh, and then you look at your filmmaker and go, well, well Andrew Haig uh, works with wonderful actors. He'd just done 45 years uh, with Charlotte Rampling. We loved Weekend. We loved Looking. We loved all those things. So you're, you're looking at it just going, this feels worth doing. It feels unusual, feels extraordinary. But it doesn't feel that it couldn't find an audience. I think if we felt it couldn't find an audience, if it didn't have any elements there, you, that I think as producers you wouldn't necessarily pursue. But with this one, you're going, is there a version of this which could be wonderful? And um, that's where we got to. Yeah. And we were all making the same film right from the start, I think. I think, you know, with yeah. the conversations with Andrew, we were making the version that Andrew wanted to make. And his script, as he's writing, is he feeding back to you? Is it a collaborative process or is it much more like, Andrew, you go write the script that you want to write and then you get to read that almost finished piece of work? I mean, he is really collaborative, actually, but it was his story and it was really important to give him the space to find what he was saying but he's a great collaborator, I think, and very sort of generous to listening to our notes. It was sort of trying to guide him in the process, wasn't it? Because I think sometimes the producer's job is to ask the questions. Mm. I, he, he set out what he wanted to do, 
and we saw draft after draft and he wrote it during um, COVID in lockdown in LA so he was quite isolated I think in a sense and I think he was definitely going down certain rabbit holes uh, certain ideas and occasionally a script would come in and uh, we'd look at it and go this is wonderful but what about that or what about that and I do remember there was a there was a point where we got a draft December 21 and I can see exactly where I was at home on the sofa reading it because it, it, it was like a, a hot knife through butter you're just like this just works completely beginning middle and end this works and I, I remember finishing the script calling Sarah uh, and then Ben who works with us at Blueprint just going this is this is the one isn't it this is great we should make it I don't have a girlfriend because I'm not into, into girls <clears throat> into women what do you mean? I mean, I'm gay. As in homosexual? As in uh, that, yeah. Really? Yeah. Since when? Uh, since a long time. How long? Forever. Let's talk about assembling... Um, this tremendous cast, we've got Andrew Scott, Paul Mescal, Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. Obviously, the casting process from film to film can vary considerably. What was it like on this movie? Is it, is it a question of sending out a script to your wish list of actors? Is it a question of you guys and Andrew sitting down with people that you're interested in being in it and feeling out uh, whether they're right for the part, whether they're interested? How did it go with all of us strangers? I mean... Andrew Scott was always everyone's absolute first choice and Andrew Haig was very kind of clear about that and that he he wanted Andrew to play the role. And then it was about sort of, you know, once you have him, you then have to look at, you know, who could who could play his mum and dad. I don't want to say it was an easy process, but we were very lucky with lots of people want to work with Andrew Haig um, and so we did really get a dream cast. We had uh, Carleen Crawford cast the film and worked with Andrew before and it's interesting because you look at some films that have maybe 10 uh, significant roles or 20 significant roles and where a casting director sits in that process. With this one it was just four, it's only four people in the film uh, and uh, once we'd got Andrew Scott, it was what sits around there. And where Carleen's insight and in her relationship with Andrew was so helpful was because if you've got any one of those wrong, there's only four roles, if you've got one wrong, you're way off on the rest of the film. And I think Carleen and Andrew's great success in this is to have got all four uh, perfect. There was a fun point, wasn't there, when we were casting, because the concept of the film is that the parents are younger yes. than, than our lead actor, Adam, uh, Andrew Scott, who, who plays Adam. I remember Andrew Haig at once saying, I want it to look like a Friends poster. I want them all to be sort of the same. It should be like Friends. <laughs> and in, in a curious way, actually, on the occasion where we've had all our actors together, it does look like that. They're, they're, I mean, they are amongst the best of British, uh, extraordinary talents, but they, they get on so well and they took themselves to such wonderful places. It was, um, it's great to see and great to see on a poster. Imagine if you'd gone to the marketing department. We need a fountain. We need some <laughs> colourful umbrellas. Uh, this is, we see this is the poster. <laughs> we only have a certain amount of time and it does seem wrong to pull out one member of this cast to talk about but he is the lead uh, as Adam so what what qualities about Andrew Scott um, do you feel made him perfect to take on this role? I mean he's a brilliant actor I think he can do anything actually and I think the range of emotions he plays and plays it in such a grounded way 
you know, made him perfect for the role. Um, it's a sense of discovery, isn't there? So for, for cinema audiences worldwide, uh, Andrew Scott is not a known name. And I'm just thinking uh, instinctively as I talk about it that I remember Judy Dench being discovered uh, for Mrs. Brown and she carried a role uh, all the way to the Oscars in the most extraordinary way, but her, a lot of her work had been in television, a lot of it had been in theatre. I think with Andrew Scott, everyone knows he's a great actor. The inspiration on this was to take him to a film and where he plays Adam with such nuance. I mean, it's much talked about his performance, so we don't spend too much time on it now. But I think the, the, the ability to transition between being a 40-something-year-old man and a 12-year-old boy in his pyjamas, uh, which are 12-year-old's pyjamas on a 45-year-old man. Still smells the same in here. You'd creep in here night after night saying you couldn't sleep. You're always scared of something. Murderers breaking in, or rabies, or nuclear war. It's almost a, a, quite a trap for an actor to be asked to play a child because there are so many ways that could have gone wrong. Yeah, just when you're <laughs> reading the script thinking, really? I'm talking to Claire Foyer, to Jamie Bell. What, what, how do we play a ghost uh, mm. or, or a memory? What are we going to do? Are we going to be helped with visual effects or are we just going to play it, play it as it is on the page? Where we think Andrew Haig has, has created something so extraordinary is it's an audacious idea. Uh, to, 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 to construct that scene of a grown man getting into bed with his younger parents and reminiscing on his childhood and what might have been. And I think Andrew Haig's beauty in finding the voice of a 12-year-old who, who might have invented going to Disneyland aged 13 or 14, invented the arguments he would have had with his parents who simply had died and left him behind. That sense of beauty in that and isolation and poignancy and melancholy is wonderful. Uh, but the resolve which Adam has as a character, as a, as a young gay man, is his mum says, did, did you get on a right at your next school? And he says, I made sure I did. And you can hear in that the, the granite resolve of, of closeted gay men going, I will not be found out, I will, I will get on with my journey. You know, when I was a teenager, or even later, into my 20s, I used to plot it all out. What do you mean? what we might have done together. In intricate detail. Trips to the Wit Gift Centre. <laughs> Birthdays. You know, trips to London. The fun one on that was he, he did it in one take. I remember him calling up going, I've done it in one take. And, and always when you're a producer you hear that, you're like, well, okay. He's going, no, 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 it's extraordinary. It's really worked really well. And you're going, great. <laughs> so then you have a look at the rushes and you're like... Yeah, he's right. The logistics of it are, are the enjoyment of it because every time you watch it with Claire Foy and Andrew Scott and then Jamie Bell's in the bed, you're absolutely... Paul. Um, well, I'm yeah, Paul. Paul's going to jump in. But the production logistics are Claire, Andrew Scott, Jamie Bell into the scene... Jamie Bell gets a tap on the shoulder, has to jump out. And it's Paul. a tiny bed. It's a tiny <laughs> It's a little VHS, four foot six bed. Paul Maskell's first day on set. And the set. only day all four of them were together yeah. as well. Now, all of this has to happen in one take and one cartridge of film because it's 400 feet of film and it has to happen within that time period. So Andrew Haig pulled it off doing a, a one take on all that whilst the production brilliantly moved people around and the actors were perfect in their moment. 
When they stop laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the outtakes are good. (laughs) It's always lovely to have the curtain pulled back on on an emotional scene like that yeah. because as you say in the film it's 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 a wonderful scene and yeah. so powerful and yet to hear Paul Mescal talking about having to swap out with Jamie yeah, Bell and yeah, being totally. in Claire Foy's eyeline <laughs> yeah. as she's delivering yeah. this speech. Yeah, yeah. And it feels so truthful, the whole scene, you know, and it's not really sentimental. It, it's all very downplayed. I think it's so naturalistic, even though it's so absurd, as Graham says. Um, that's what's really extraordinary about it. But we should probably merchandise the pyjamas. <laughs> um, I really think we They're should great. be doing that. I'm sorry. but <laughs> this, is, this is great. Uh, it's, it's a very different movie. Uh, we're merchandising the pyjamas and it's <laughs> a friend's poster. poster. Yeah, you know, Bridget Jones <laughs> merchandised her pyjamas. Yeah. <laughs> And in terms of the shoot, I, I mean, a lot of people might be interested to know what, what your job as producers is. What is an average day once your film has begun shooting? Is there such a thing as an average day? What is your time mostly spent on while the film is actually shooting? This one going in was there, there were some prep decisions to make, um, which were where is this house going to be that 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 uh, our characters are going to live in, that our parents are going to live in. And there is a story around that, that Andrew Haig, uh, when we were talking to locations, was like, well, it's, it's set in Sanderson near Croydon. Uh, it's where I grew up. It's, it's going to be like this. And we were like, well, why don't you go and scout and have a look around? Which takes Andrew Haig to his own childhood home, knocking on the door going, could we come and film here? Which was extraordinary. So that was one production decision, a very brave creative decision, but a production decision done. And any any, any fear on your part with that decision? I only ask because obviously it's, it's such a personal film mm. that he's yeah. making. It's a personal script. And when your director who has written this personal script mm. goes... I also want to shoot it Mm. in the home that I lived in, where a lot of the memories I've drawn from, not all of which are happy, have made it into this film. Do you have to sort of just ask the question, like, are you sure? Are you you sure this is the right decision? It's interesting because I think it's, again, that producing thing is it's the question, isn't it? Good idea. It seems great. I mean, we're in. We're all in. It's yeah. a great idea. I think he had to think about that really for himself. And if he's offering that, he's already really thought about it, Andrew Haig. But it was completely extraordinary. And the house was pretty unchanged as well. Um, we did knock a wall down. Um, and Andrew Haig says we, they got new electrics out of it as well. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, it was really, you know, his bedroom. It's kind of, you know weird almost um how it was a sort of in a time capsule and is it strange for the cast as well i mean you know because obviously they're they're, they're performing a, a personal script and mm. then they're told and it happened in in this house a lot of it did, 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 does he sit down with them and sort of go it's fine i'm fine with this by the way we're, we're all making the same thing i want to do this it's interesting the for for paul and andrew and claire and jamie talking about that uh, um which we've all done since, they were aware that Andrew Haig's vulnerability and openness in taking his cast and this film to that very personal space allowed them to be more vulnerable in their performance and their character. And I, and I think there was a an extraordinary generosity to each other, to both a director and actors in this process that allowed them to find something, a very vulnerable but safe space and to support each other in that. And it shows uh, and the actors have talked about that and I think that's produced something extraordinary there. 
I've listened to the actors um, talk about it myself, and it it sounds like um, such a, a an amazing atmosphere on on a, on a film set. The the camaraderie between this cast. Um, it, it seems very unique to this film because obviously that is not always the case on yeah. a film. I mean, can you talk us through the atmosphere on this set and potentially how unique that is to this specific production? I think everybody really cared. Our crew were amazing as well. You know, the production design, um, our DP, everybody really cared. And so I feel like it was like this little gem that was really made with love um and it was a, it it felt like a very intimate set you know it, it was a small cast so it all felt very personal and i think sort of andrew haig sort of fosters that kind of environment so that's what i i would say about yeah. it and everyone wanted to be there it, it, it's not a checkbook film <laughs> no so everyone wanted to be there and and every time we went to a cast straight away like yeah we're in because they could see there might be something great there. And they all got on. It was friends. It was friends on the poster. I love it. I love it. It's, uh, it's not a checkbook film, but you do get new electrics at the end. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> Obviously, no film uh, production is, is ever seamless. Uh, mm. As producers, what was the biggest challenge that you encountered during the shooting of this film that you had to overcome? Or was it potentially the, the perfect shoot? The tower block was mm. a bit of an mm. issue. We couldn't find a tower block um, to sort of establish where he lived, even though London is full of empty tower blocks. Yes. It yeah. was really hard to get permission. And so that was a bit tricky, wasn't it? Just in terms yeah, it was of... Yeah, very down to the wire. Tower blocks are owned by corporate entities largely located somewhere far, far away, and they have no interest in filmmaking. It just doesn't matter what Especially you talk about. Especially the subject, you know. Yeah. But the other the other part, of the, the very physical production side, uh, a great credit to our line producer, Jeremy Campbell, was so the apartment that uh, Andrew Scott lives in was obviously in a studio... Uh, but it is the 27th floor. And we were looking at how do you portray the world outside that apartment as a living environment? Because you might use green screen, but it doesn't live in quite the same way. It doesn't allow your actors to interact with that impart- that, that exterior as well. So the danger is it might feel very, very internalised rather than isolated, internalised. And um, Jeremy had been pursuing with Jamie Ramsey the idea of LED screens which are slightly unproven, I have to say, at, the, at this stage, okay. in the way we wanted to do it. So the entire exterior of that, that apartment is 500 LED screens that are all joined up. What I remember production-wise was we were shooting there on the Monday, <clears throat> and we hadn't turned them on. Uh, Jamie Ramsey shot brilliant plates for daytime, nighttime, uh, dusk, dawn, everything we would need. But we hadn't tried them out. And I think the Thursday or Friday before, we were like, well, it's either going to work or we just have a giant, giant, giant problem. It did work brilliantly, which was great. The funny thing on that is that Jamie Ramsey's plates are, so they're live footage shot from the 27th floor of an apartment block in Stratford. And oftentimes as a producer on set, everyone's being busy and you're not needed at all, really. So I kept finding myself watching little bits of footage you could see it was so big the screens you could see into apartments into worlds into people on the pavement and I found myself feeling a little bit rear window <laughs> you'd look at it going oh I really hope no one's being murdered in in there <laughs> no one else everyone else is oblivious and had a proper job but I would sit there going oh 
So now you know what Graham was doing on set <laughs> when we were producing the movie. I was a witness he for was... a piece. I was making sure nothing bad happened. <laughs> he was in his own world. <laughs> uh, that certainly answers my question. Is there such a thing as a regular day <laughs> on a film set? Apparently not, no. Um, so this, this tower block, um, I, I'd love to ask you, does it exist then? I, I'd love you to pull back the curtain. Is that the exterior shot of Adam's tower block home? Is that is that a model? Is that uh, something? No, it's real. No, it, is, it, it is real. It is real. Yeah. But it took a lot of negotiation. And then with the FX, the the, the, the big exterior from behind, we redid to, to, to duplicate our building. So we reclad a building VFX. But that does genuinely exist in Stratford okay. with that, that great urban view of London. Right. With an ability to look into people's windows. And just, <laughs> make, Some make, people will look into people's windows. What was that shout? Only murders in the building. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was doing. <laughs> Music uh, plays an important part uh, mm. of this film. Uh, it's very significant. Uh, some of the song choices, which we're going to talk about at the end. Mm. And, uh, and a quick uh, note to our listeners that we are going to be doing spoilers towards the end because we are going to talk yeah. about the end. Um, were those songs written into the script? And how challenging is that for you then as producers to manage mm. to get every song that Andrew Haig wants? They were mostly written into the script, yes. Yeah, so he... And music, as you say, was a huge part of it and was even during the development phase, he kind of knew... Uh, it, a lot of the records were things that he'd listened to as records when he was when he was a kid. Um, I think Pet Shop Boys were absolutely key, um, and oh, so that scene where I know Claire Foy's, I think that's another favourite scene of mine. Actually, yeah, it's but, incredible. I think that was yeah. I, I count myself as not the biggest cry, but that was when I started <laughs> to feel myself go. Yeah, there's something cultural, isn't it, about the Pet Shop Boys? And I was listening to Andrew Scott talk the other day. So for for a lot of gay men and Andrew Hay Scott and myself, there 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 was a you grew up with the Pet Shop Boys in the 80s, and there was something beautiful and melancholic and inspiring and celebratory in what they were doing depending where you were in your sort of coming out process and those Pet Shop Boys songs are very reminiscent of the late 80s early 90s and and they're extra- they, they work so well in the film but Andrew has literally rehabilitated them back to a 2024 audience which is nice we showed the Pet Shop Boys the film the other day and oh, Neil wow. and Chris came in and it was a slight fandom moment it was like They've come to a preview theatre in Soho and as producers, you know, you're largely like, yeah, on you go, on you go. It's like, no, no, I'm coming. And Andrew <laughs> Scott was away in LA and Andrew Haig was away in LA. So don't worry, I'm going. <laughs> um, but it was it was great to see them and they were really they were really proud of their music in the film, which is which is great. Yeah. I think the other extraordinary unsung hero of the film is Emily, the composer, because the soundscape of the film, the emotional soundscape behind these very strong, actually great pop songs, it is to have a score that supports the characters, supports the journey, supports the emotional journeys in a way that doesn't feel maudlin, doesn't feel unduly melancholic, and actually offers some some optimism and hope and journey too. And I think Emily just composed a wonderful, beautiful score. It's one of the, the other great successes as a producer. When you're listening to the soundtrack, you know, months after the film's been released, uh, and Emily's soundtrack is on Spotify, I listened to it the other day, just going, I love this, I love this world, I love this music, I find it utterly beautiful. I think she did something wonderful for us on the, on the soundtrack of the film. Um- we, we we touched on one of the biggest challenges, finding the tower block. Is there, a, is there something that you're most proud of being able 
to achieve in this production? For me, it's that it seems to have completely worked for people. You know, it's a much more overall thing. And 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 it that's really about Andrew Haig and our actors pulling it off. Um, that, to me, is the yeah. kind of joy. There's a weird thing also. So during, during the edit, as producers again, Andrew would ask us in probably every week or two, we'd have another look at a new cut, another look at a new cut, and Jonathan Alberts, wonderful editor we were with. And... Oftentimes you slightly tire of the film. You keep seeing it and, and after the 10th viewing or 12th, your brain is not as fresh or whatever. But I think every time we watched this, we always emo- came out emotionally, uh, I think very complete. It was like this, this emotional experience mm. is, is just extraordinary. And um, that, that was something to, to really hold on to as the film kept fine-tuning itself during the post-process. Yeah. We, I think we knew from the first cut that we saw that it worked. Um, and it's largely the same film. It's, it's, it's been sort of shortened, but it is largely the same movie from the first cut that we saw. How much longer was that first cut considerably longer? Because you often hear that the, the first cut of a film is, is much longer than what eventually gets released. Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it, it, it would have been a fair bit longer and that's that's done between yourselves and Andrew Hagen and, and your your editor Brilliant because editor, yeah yeah because you often hear I mean uh, uh, granted this is this is this is much uh, more prevalent with uh, with big studio movies where a film will go out to a test audience yeah. and mm-hmm. test screenings and scores <clears throat> come back that's not something that happened with Oliver Strange no, or was we, it we did do that and, a little and bit I, it's I think it's Andrew Haig I, I didn't love the process uh, I think it's fair to say. But I, I do think there's a point where you want to take the film from the cutting room to an audience and feel it with an audience. The testing, we work with lots of filmmakers, uh, and actually surprisingly a lot of them like the test process. Not for the numbers on the page, because they are what they are and anyone can make what they want of those statistics. But I think the process of feeling in a room with an audience uh, and just making sure that how you feel about about those scenes or that length or the way that's cut uh, is a really useful part of the process. Um, but I think, as Sarah was saying on this one, the, the we knew we had something good, so it was just like, as long as it takes to edit this to the most perfect version of what it should be, let's just keep going, because it gets more beautiful every time we see it, so let's keep going. And obviously the film is... Um having a theatrical release, I guess what you're talking about is testament to the idea of film being viewed in a communal experience, still really being the best way to watch a film because you're feeding off yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the audience in the room. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's brilliant that it's got a theatrical release and that audiences hopefully will find it and, you know, everyone that's seen it at festivals sort of comes up to it. It, it really feels like it connects with an audience and people come up to us after the festivals we've been to and tell their stories of you know people they've lost or people they're in love with and so it's it's it yeah it's the sort of communal power of sitting in a room and watching something so it's communal and cathartic i remember in new york when we were at the new york film festival where they had a little balcony view where we could just see the end of the film and it's very rare you see the screen and the audience from above. And you could see the interaction between film and audience, particularly towards the, the quite emotional scenes of the film. And you could see that it worked and there was something in that experience in the theatre that worked. And then Andrew Haig was asked, what do you want people to feel at the end of this film? And 
it is all about love. Um, if we were to get to the ending, it's the power of love. It's all about love. And I remember Andrew Haig saying, I, I would love people to leave this film and to go and hug someone, their friends, their lovers, their parents, whatever it is, to, just to go and to go and hug and love. And that seems to be the most positive note you can take from film. But that communal experience for an audience almost gives the energy for people to be front footed out the theatre and find that love. And that, that very first time, to put um, the idea of test screenings to one side, but that very first time that uh, you both were in the first screening of uh, the film, um, mm. tell me about that moment of watching it for the first time with an audience and how you're feeling as the titles begin and the film starts. What's going through your heads as producers? Well, it's, 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 an, it's a strange experience, it's isn't really it? It's really strange. So we were at yeah. um, Telluride, uh, which is where the film was launched, and... We went into Telluride as, an, uh, as one of a number of films that no one had ever heard of, which is actually one of the nice things about festival viewing sometimes, that the films are not pre-marketed. It's just go and watch some things and see if they're interesting. And uh, as you begin, you're vulnerable because, I mean, you're all vulnerable because you really love it and you really want people to like it and to enjoy it. And then cut to the end of that screening in Telluride where without, we had no sense of where we were on the map at all. And then uh, the reviews were embargoed but came straight out and we were with the Searchlight people there and Andrew Haig and suddenly you go, oh, it turns out people really get it. <laughs> it turns out they really love it. And, and you were see, I think we saw 10 or 12 reviews literally straight out the gate and you're like, we knew it worked. Yeah, it's scary. It's like holding your breath, basically. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> horrible and then wonderful. And then brilliant. And then yeah. wonderful. And then a relief. Yeah. And then you're just really, you know, proud. And But yeah, that's that's how I would describe yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And you read those reviews and you're like, we need to manufacture a lot of pyjamas <laughs> very <Obviously>, quickly. <laughs> that is the first thing I do. The red buttons would be great. <laughs> I did say we were going to talk spoilers. And, and, and full disclosure, just before this interview started, I started going, so this is my interpretation <laughs> of the ending. So I, I'm going to give you my thinking um, because I, I, it's... It's wonderful, and I think the ambiguity of the end, people, as you've said, mm. can take whatever they yeah. want from the, the end. And I've had a lot of conversations with people going, this is what I interpret it as. And mm. So um, without wanting to sound uh, too bleak, because I don't think it is a bleak ending, but <clears throat> my take is that at the end, as um, Adam and Harry disappear into that, that wonderful shot as they become mm. this, this star in the, the infinite heavens, um, is that Adam, as well as Harry, is also dead at that moment mm -hmm. um, because having watched it and I mentioned the songs have some significance there are at least two maybe three songs that mention the word fire mm -hmm. uh, as part of their lyrics there is the fire alarm at the very start when mm -hmm. Harry says one of these days that's going to be real mm -hmm. there's Adam getting hotter and hotter throughout there's yeah. the coughing on the tube which would suggest smoke inhalation so my feeling in a, in a, in a nice way is this his parents wanted to make their peace with Adam before they moved on. Adam is making his peace with them and, and moving on himself. He's dying over the course of the mm -hmm. movie in an apartment that's ablaze mm -hmm. and he's in this kind of purgatory. And then at the end, he, he moves on, but in a beautiful way because he's found Harry and he'd rather be with Harry yeah. in the afterlife than carry on in this lonely existence in the real world. Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you've done a PhD on that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the great one of the great qualities of the film is the ambiguous and the grey, 
And we have sat with audiences, haven't we, where Andrew Hayes has been talking to the audience. And people have found a lot of different versions of what they feel the film might be. Uh, conceptually, is it really a ghost story? Is he really going to a house with ghosts? Is he writing that script that begins exterior suburban house 1987? Is it a sort of dream? It's is a metaphysical memory journey. And what's great about it is it can be any. Whatever you feel as an audience, the, the, the smart thing about the film and what Andrew Haig's created is the emotional journey. So how you put your scaffolding or logistics or facts around that is is up to you, and that's great. But I think that people's emotional experience of the film is is one that can get you to a very beautiful, and I think we feel optimistic place at the end mm. for Adam, but, um, but yeah. entirely personal. Just an aside on it, it was funny, when we were talking to financiers uh, early on, we developed the film with Film 4, and then went to, to look for a studio partner. And we, we had a very uh, engaged conversation with one studio who, who clearly loved it in every way. And then I remember one of the executives going, sorry, is, is Harry alive or dead? <laughs> and I was like, whatever you want it to be. <laughs> I, I just want you to know that I wanted them both to live and run off together happily ever after. But everybody said, no, um, that wasn't going to be the end. Right. <laughs> But it is interesting because it, on first viewing, some people I mean, people feel sad anyway and, and certainly emotional because it is a beautiful love story and there's a beautiful parental family story in there too. And the parents get to say goodbye too. There's so much going on there emotionally, I think. But I, I, I think that people can find their own way through it. Uh, and then oftentimes people, people who watch it the second time, I think they get where Andrew Hayes' generosity is to his audience, which is not... The experience of a, to be blunt, an ashtray of misery. It, it, there is something very beautiful in this film about love, and as you say, the song at the end, the power of love. We we debated at one stage. There was a a brilliant Theroux quote which we had on the film, then off the film, and we wondered if it threw people. But the quote was, "There is no remedy for love, but to love more." And to me, the minute you understand that, you can see exactly where Andrew Haig has gone with this film, which is a generosity to love. And it takes you back to that experience that he talked about of when you leave the theatre, what are we remembering about each other and who are we going to hug? That's great. And, that, and so to go back to my initial interpretation, what you're saying is, I'm right in my world. So to in me, which world. is often the case. In, in your own world, yeah. you are So when right. I'm walking around my flat on my own, I'm right. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, I've got uh, some big quick fire questions mm. just to ask you um, to, to wrap yeah. up uh, our chat today. Uh, so the first question is, um, can you remember your favourite day either on the set of the film or in the edit of the film? Edit of the film, first time we saw it. Yeah, edit the film, um, at the end of it, lights come up, you've got your financiers there as well, Searchlight and Film 4. We're all feeling a little bit vulnerable and I think we just looked at each other just going, it's just beautiful. Mm. Whatever it is, it's beautiful. So was your first look to each other or to the financiers? It's <laughs> To us, Andrew, and then to the financiers. But they were dribbling Andrew's tears. Andrew's like right at the back. I think we were all right at the back, yeah, weren't we? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, uh, conversely, uh, though, was there a particularly hard day, either on the set or in the edit? I would say it's, it's actually just before, but it's pre-production. It's like getting this tower block. So this is a film entirely conceptually set in a tower block. 
and literally three weeks into the shoot, we've got permission to shoot a tower block, but it's withdrawn. So we don't have a tower block. The entire film is set around a tower block, and there isn't one. And you've only got three more weeks shooting to go. So exactly how is that going to work out? And uh, that was that was a it's the four o'clock in the morning problem as a producer. It's like, what the fuck are we going to do? Okay, uh, what uh, would you say is the toughest part of a producer's job? I think it's just not giving up. And there are times where you have real lows and you just think, oh, my God, this is never going to happen. So I think, uh, yeah, I think don't give up. Uh, But but that's probably the biggest thing. We'll end it there. But thank you so much. Thank Um, you. Once again, congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for watching it so carefully. Thank you. (laughs) And for your PhD. (laughs) Yeah. My thanks to Graham Broadbent and Sarah Harvey. And of course, to you for listening. Follow the podcast to explore the rest of the nominees and much more in the months to come. Thanks too to the producers of this series, Matt Hill and Ollie Peart at Rethink Audio with sound design by Peregrine Pez Andrews. I'm Alex Zane. This was a BAFTA production. I'll see you again as the countdown to the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024 continues. (laughs) 